Hello and welcome to episode one of the Stories of Survival podcast. I am the host, Sam. Uh, before we get started with our guest today, I want to take a quick minute and just explain what this show is about for those who are new to what we're doing here and haven't seen the other episode or anything on the social media. So the concept of this show is to speak with those individuals who have had experiences where they have been lost or otherwise unable to self-rescue in the wilderness or otherwise and hear from them, hear their experiences, and really get to learn and grow together as we understand those situations. Um, you know, for me, in, in my experience, I've had an experience being lost, and there's something about it that you just can't uh, prepare for. So my hope is, is that having these conversations and, and learning of these stories will help us all to better understand what we're doing when we're recreating, when we're out in the wilderness, um, but also just to learn and grow as humans and individuals. So that's kind of the brief thumbnail of what this show is about and what we're trying to accomplish. But with that, we will jump right in. I'm excited to uh, announce today's guest is Dr. Scott Hammond. Um, Scott is a faculty member at Utah State University and the John M. Huntsman School of Business. He is a accomplished search and rescue member, um, an author, all sorts of things. Scott, the, you've got a, a pretty long resume. So with that, I'll go ahead and kick it over to you and let you introduce yourself and kind of tell your story. Uh, you know it better than anyone. So then we'll go from there. Well, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. This is going to be a great podcast. Um, I got involved in search and rescue. Like you, I've been lost before in the wilderness. I think everyone's been lost, whether it's in work life or the wilderness. And so we know that feeling. We know what it's like. And But I got involved in search and rescue because I wanted, I was looking for hiking one day, and I wanted to be involved in a search that was going on. And they wouldn't let me because I wasn't qualified. And I also wondered about what it would be like to have a dog help. And so I got eventually got a, a golden retriever and trained my golden retriever to be a search dog. And um, after a few years, then I moved over to the county sheriff's office and started working for them as a volunteer in a search and rescue team. That's a very active team. And I think one of the best teams in the United States It's Utah County Search and Rescue. Um, and we have about 100 to 120 call outs a year. Uh, we're highly trained. 60 professionals, mostly self-managed, um, do a lot of helicopter retrievals, a lot of rescue, and some search. Um, but I have to tell you, Sam, um, this being involved in search and rescue has just changed my life. Um, it has uh, given me a chance to be there on the worst day of somebody's life and make a difference and be there with some of the best people I've ever known and meet incredibly brave and wonderful people who have survived in the worst possible situations. And so that's kind of what my academic research has become about, but it's also deeply personal, even spiritual, when you see somebody go through an experience and then come home. Yeah, it's, um, that's an interesting point. So for those that don't know, I'll plug, <laughs> I'll, I'll plug something else that I do. So I, I run a separate podcast called The Alone Podcast, where I interview folks from a, a TV show called Alone. It's essentially a wilderness survival show. And it's, you know, it's about as, as real as reality TV can, can be today. Uh, it's 100% it's real. And one of the things that, that interested me in getting started with talking to those folks and eventually coming down this, you know, podcasting and, and 
this rabbit hole really was seeing the profound change in these folks' lives. Um, of course, it's a little bit different. That's a, a very as, as controlled of an uncontrolled environment as you can get, you know, where there's, yeah. you know, they, someone knows where they're at at all times. They have the ability to pop out at any time, um, you know, but if something were to go sideways, rescue oftentimes is, you know, almost an hour away at any given point in time. But to see the change in their lives over that and in, in long experience. So it's interesting to hear you talk about it being a, a spiritual and a, a transformative experience. Um, even typically in something I'm assuming that's uh, much less duration. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, of what you've seen? You're right. The, the Alone series is contrived. It's created by some producers. But the psychology of it is not. Not at all. And you can <laughs> see that. I mean, you can feel that when you see the show, that people are, are really going through that sense of lostness. Yep. They, they may have food. They may have shelter. They may have lots of things. But they are alone. And they are feeling that sense of lostness. And and so it kind of underlines what it really means to be lost, because for me, what it really means to be lost is not just that you don't know where you are. You know, the people on alone know exactly where they are. Right. But it's that you don't know how to know where you are. So you don't know how to use the GPS. You don't know how to use the map or psychologically. You don't know how to connect in a way with anyone. There's no one to connect with that you can kind of get oriented. And it's that orientation, disorientation feeling that, may, that is what real lostness is. It's not a geographic problem. It's a mental problem. And you see that on the lawn. Yeah, I, you know, I want to talk about, um, you mentioned that you had been lost prior. You know, you had an experience getting lost or turned around or whatever it ended up yeah. being, right? Because um, I, I don't know, to me, there's varying levels of, you know, turned around, misplaced, and then I'm lost. Um, can you share a little bit about your experience and and what happened to you and, and what your takeaways well, were from there? There's a, a story I talk about in my book, Lessons of the Lost, where um, I went with a buddy and, you know, we were we had summit fever. We were going to go to the top of this mountain that I'd never climbed before. It's right right near our cabin in the high Uintas in the Rocky Mountains of Utah. And um, it's called Lamote Peak. And it was kind of an October day and we were going to go to the top of this um, 12,000, 12,500 foot peak. There'd been a little snow th that year, but it hadn't stuck around. It was still kind of a, a, a nice fall day. And we started climbing up and up and up. And we go past, the, we come, come up a, a, onto a ridge and we see a place where there'd been a, a, a forest fire on our left. And then we can, continued up onto another ridge. And I've got this famous picture of me almost making it up to that other ridge that my buddy took it from behind. You can see this massive winter storm coming right at us, you know? And so he's calling out to me, you know, time to turn around, time to go home. Finally gets me turned around. We start heading home and uh, we get down the mountain a little bit and whiteout hits us. So your I mean, buddy it, was trying to convince you to, I want to highlight something there. It sounds like your yeah. friend was trying to say, Hey Scott, it's, it's time friend. Yeah, let's get out of here. We're not going to make this summit. And I'm, I'm saying, no, no, no. Uh, you know, I got to do this. And so, yeah. you know, it, it's like I've got, I'm starting to get bad, bad vision because I only want to get to the top. of this. And on the way down, we're going down and, and it's just, you can see maybe 10 or 15 feet. You can see all the trees look the same. The snow's just dumping on us. And, um, and, you know, he says, get out your compass to make sure we're going the right direction. I didn't bring a compass. 
Why would I bring a compass? This is places I hike all the time. I don't need a compass. You know, I don't have a GPS. So neither of us were prepared and we're going down and we find that those burnt trees that we saw on the way up on the left side again. Now that's not right when you're going down. If they're, if, you, yep. if you're going up and they're on the left side and you're going down and they're on the left side, something's wrong directionally. Did this register my, while it was happening? The, oh, no. The as fact- soon as I saw that, I thought they moved the trees. You know, somebody moved the trees. Uh, something is wrong here. We're going in the right direction. We're you know, So I went into that denial phase really quickly. And after a few steps, we realized we had to confront that we were probably going the wrong direction and that we didn't know where we were. And... Um, so we decided um, that we were going to just take a right turn and kind of go up the ridge again, follow the contour of the land. And we did. And we found our tracks in the snow again, that we had turned around completely and we're going back up the mountain. And we didn't even know that. And so that it was just 20 or 30 minutes of being lost. But it gave me a sense of what happens in your head when you're lost. First of all, your limitations. You, you, you develop all these limited options, you, you denial and all these things, your, your brain starts to work in fuzzy ways. And so you see limited options. Uh, you start kind of doing things in default and let history drive you because that's what used to work and what you're doing right now isn't working. But you feel a lot of shame. I couldn't, I can't tell you, Sam, how much shame I felt. I was lost for 20 minutes and I felt embarrassed for myself. And don't tell anybody that Professor Hammond got lost in the wood. You know, I just was really ashamed of that. And, uh, and when people are ashamed, they want to be less visible. They don't want, they, in, there are cases when we've looked for people who were actually hiding and they may have even died where they were hiding because they're ashamed of being lost. And uh, then there's another strategy that some people use. And that's kind of a movement bias. As long as we're headed down the trail, we must be okay. We move, we go, we, but we're going in the wrong direction and we don't even know it. And so they're splashing around. They're not doing the right things, but they're doing something. And that, that can be bad too. You know, you, you talk about that, that shame piece. Um, my, my father, he had shared an experience with me that he and some friends were hunting, on, hunting sheep on Santa Cruz Island off the coast of California. And this was years and years and years ago. I don't even know. It would have been probably in the seventies, I would say. And he is, he was relaying the story to me of, you know, him and his friend had just left camp and they had gotten up into some cliffs and, you know, they were in pretty rough terrain. I mean, it wasn't the type of place you want to be lost in a storm. Right. And the storm blew in and they were kind of cliffed out, but huddled up just trying to, you know, get out of the rain. And, this other individual came kind of traipsing through heading back to camp to get out of the storm. And he, you know, didn't think he was lost. And as he was talking to my dad and his friend, they were like, no, you're going in the complete opposite direction. In fact, you know, you're, you're headed towards danger. They ended up needing to basically uh, makeshift repel themselves out of there because they'd gotten cliffed up. Thankfully they had something with them that they were able to, you know, makeshift repel down. But that individual, he would not, I mean, it took, I think he relayed about 10 minutes of two men saying, look, we were just there an hour ago. Like you are, you're headed the opposite direction and he would not believe it, wouldn't buy it, couldn't accept that, 
you know, and I thought that was just a, like a, an interesting one-off anecdote, but then reading your book, you talk about that in, in your book, Lessons of the Lost, which if you're out there listening, um, Lessons of the Lost, you can get it pretty much anywhere. Um, you know, Apple Books, it's on Amazon, um, and it's very well written. And you talk about that for yourself. So that that shame, I, I want to talk about some of those stories where you're talking about folks that have maybe hidden themselves. Because I think for me as a, as a lay person, my first thought would be, oh, seeking shelter. But you actually yeah. see cases where folks um, have tried to obscure the fact that they are lost. Yeah. And I uh, remember a few years ago, this would have been, but it was a wilderness search and it was for uh, a mother and a daughter who had uh, gone hiking in October again in the mountains and then um, gotten caught in the warm, what they call it the warm before the storm here where you, you know, things feel really nice. And then all of a sudden clobber, you get what I got on that mountain, uh, uh, a real winter storm and that had happened to them and they came to a fork in the trail went the wrong direction and were the subject of a massive search their bodies were found um several well let's see six months later when when things thawed and they had left a note that described that apologized essentially to the searchers over and over again apologized and I thought, if you have your last words, why would you make that an apology to the searchers? Why wouldn't you want to reach out to the people you love and say one last thing? Uh, that's the, the power of shame. It's so many times that when we've come up, I've come across a person or my dogs come across a person, we found them and they're fine and they've only been lost for a few hours and things are fine. And they want to apologize all the way down the mountain. And what we just want to do is put our arm around them and say, it's okay, it's okay. We've all been there. We've all been there, and you're fine. Do you do you find that that um, does that? I don't even know how to to word this. Does that transcend um, ability and preparedness? Is it kind of a, a, there's a, a wide spectrum of folks that feel that way? Because I mean, for me, I um, I've never had to be rescued. Thankfully, um, I had an experience a couple years ago where I was I was up running in uh kind of right after a, a huge snowstorm so i was running wow. in the mountains in the wasatch mountains um in about i don't know 18 inches two feet of snow early morning so it was well below freezing and you know i was uh running with about as minimal of gear as possible because i was trying to make time and distance not thinking yeah. of staying alive if something went sideways and um i ended up taking a fall and injuring myself pretty pretty badly and for the first little bit i you know i had to take about 5 minutes and evaluate and say okay can i self rescue if i can't self rescue am i do i have the time to call a friend to come you know basically be a crutch for me to get me down or do i have to call for actual rescue cuz i mean i was hot sweaty and it was probably yeah. 15 20 degrees out at the most in 2 feet of snow and you're in your just typical case there because you're wondering, um, should I call search and rescue? And the answer is yes. Well, uh, and- you know, when, when, whenever we get a call, we don't all we don't send 60 people out looking for it. There's a deputy who takes the call and does a serious evaluation. Sometimes you can talk them off the mountain without need of rescue. Sometimes just getting a medical crew to walk, start walking up the trail is enough. 
Um, There are a lot of ways to deal with problems that aren't full bore. Um, But when it is full bore, this is really important for people to know. When we have to get our whole team out, and when there are helicopters and very expensive things involved, it does not get charged. It's not, it doesn't cost anything. It's better to do that and, and have somebody walk down or not need you than it is to lose somebody on the mountain and wish you'd responded. Yeah. See, and that's the thing is I was, you know, when I, when that happened and I was going through that evaluation process of, okay, can I self-rescue? And if I can't self-rescue to what level do I need assistance? And, um, so I was trying to be methodical, but the thing that kept running through my mind, and so it's funny, I guess I, I'm proving your point, even though I didn't, I guess, understand it, is I was, if I had to call search and rescue, I was going to do it, right? I knew I only probably had about one phone call on my battery because it was so cold out. That yeah. it was, if I needed to make a call, I had to make the right call. And, um, but I kept on telling myself, like, you know better, right? I knew that what I was doing was, incredibly risky and that I was counting on my own skills and abilities to not do something dumb. But I did. I felt kind of a level of, man, my bad choices are potentially going to make people have to come get me and I know better. Um, What's interesting is that when you're lost in the wilderness, um, you know, people knew where you were generally uh, and uh, they would have found your car. They would have pinged your phone. They would have done something. You're never lost alone. And uh, a few years ago, uh, we were up in a place called Daggett Lake, which is in one of the northern counties in Utah that is very sparsely populated. They have 1,500 people in the county in the summer and 800 in the winter. And so they have a very small search team. And whenever they have a search up there, they need help. And we were up there helping them uh, look for a, a kid who you would call a hood in the woods uh, or hoods in the woods. You know, he was on a wilderness therapy program. And they don't handcuff you to a tree at night. They just take away your shoes so you don't run away. And they'd taken away his shoes and he'd run away anyway. And uh, he'd been gone for four days, actually. The first day I got up there, uh, there were about 20 of us. And we um, got our dogs working and we're trying to find out, trying to track him. And we were, we, we didn't, we kind of got a direction of travel of where he was going, but we, we just lost him. We couldn't find him. And, um, Second day, there were about 40 or 50 people looking that had come from Wyoming and Colorado and mostly Utah to look for him. By day four, there were about 400 people looking for this young man. And um, because, you know, we know as we look at the statistics that if you don't find them within 48 hours, the chances increase dramatically uh, for a bad outcome. So we were giving it a big push and trying really hard. And we had built this huge grid that uh, had and each and searched each of the grids. I had found um, with a, a man tracker had found his um, his what we thought was his track coming out of the woods. But then we lost it. We couldn't figure out whether he'd gotten in a car or gone into a campground or if he had turned around and gone back into the woods. It turns out that he'd gone back into the woods. And so we sent somebody up into this one grid, this one place that hadn't been searched, and there he was, four days in the woods, no food, no shoes, uh, ready to come home, you know. And he knew he was going to be in some trouble, uh, and he was very scared. And they put him up on the top, of, on the back of this horse, and they led him down the mountain. And as he came down in the mountain, 
he came down to this camp of 400 people that were all getting ready to go home. And he, he was, he, I interviewed him later and he told me that he was just deathly afraid that everybody's going to be mad at him, which is the normal reaction, right? They cheered. They cheered for him. People clapped. Um, people went up and gave him a high five. Um, some people wanted to hug him, but there were, you know, he, he was like, for a moment, he was a celebrity. And he told me in the interview later that that's the only time in his life that anybody had cheered for him. Um, it, and I just thought, you know, you're never lost alone. You don't understand. People don't understand that if, if in the United States, if, if you are lost, we will come. Strangers, search and rescue, volunteers, um, mothers and fathers and uh, um, family members, um, they will come until you're found. And uh, sometimes it takes a long time. Sometimes it's not a good outcome, but people will keep looking for you. Yeah, I, that. Sorry, that story. Um, it it it's making me think a lot. <laughs> I, I have to pause and think through that. You mentioned you interviewed him later, and and um, did you get a sense if that experience was enduringly transformative in his life? Absolutely. It was absolutely transformative. And I would say that everyone that I've ever interviewed, uh, and I've probably got 120, 130 interviews that I've done of lost people, and uh, everyone that I've interviewed has described for me something that's transformational. They might not call it religious, um, but um, somebody who's religious would call it religious. Identify that. that they reached out in their mind, in their soul, to uh, a maker or a concept of God or to somebody and said, uh, if you're there, please help me. Hmm. And, uh, and with humility. And so it's incredibly transformative in, in some real important ways. Um, in the book, I describe a woman named Victoria Grover who was in the Escalante area doing some hiking by herself. Uh, she had done desert survival her whole life. And so she knew things, knew how to operate in the desert. She had also was a physician's assistant. So she knew the medical issues associated with it. And she got out a little too far on her hike and had to overnight, but she was confident she'd just get back first thing in the morning and intercept search and rescue before they came. And as she was trying to get back Early in the morning, she found herself going down a dry waterfall area that was rather steep, and she had to drop into a kind of a pit at the bottom of this waterfall. And when she did that, it was about an 18-inch drop. I mean, it was not a, a, a big drop, but she landed wrong on a rock and had a, a double fracture in her leg that was very serious. And, um, and here she is in the pit where nobody can see her, where nobody can hear her. And, uh, and nobody's there anyway, because this is a very, very remote part of, of Utah. So um, she sat there at the bottom of this pit for three or four hours, trying really hard to, to uh, figure out what to do. She knew with a broken leg that she could not climb out of it. And she told me that she saw herself backwards, that she saw herself looking in a mirror and then she saw herself in the mirror backwards. And as soon as that word backwards came into her head, she said, backwards, I can go up backwards. So she turned around and with her one good leg, scooted up on her butt, up and over this rock. 
and then scooted herself along over to the river. There is a little stream, a crystal clear stream that runs through that area. She scooted herself over to that crystal clear stream and got the water she needed because you have to start hydrating very quickly when you have a severe fracture like that. And, and while she was pull, going um, along, she got out a little $2 poncho that she brought with her and put anything that would burn on the poncho so that she um, could uh, start a fire. And so when she got to the shore and drank, then she started a fire. Um, got a nice fire going and then covered the fire, the coals of the fire with sand and sat on the sand all night. And that's what kept her alone and er, er, alive. And she lived for four days that way until she was found. That's interesting. Um, someone, the talk about the spiritual nature, someone that we're going to speak to uh, here in one of the next episodes that's already committed to come on. I've actually spoken to this individual on my other podcast and so I, I feel comfortable sharing this story before he's on this show since, you know, he's already shared it publicly. Um, and he was someone that uh, is someone, I guess, that wasn't much of a, a man of faith, I'll say, or didn't at least, maybe he was, but, you know, I don't know exactly what that relationship was. And he was also in Southern Utah and had an experience where he got lost. And um, he was with a group of folks on a desert survival learning experience right he was a very experienced individual already at that point in time and he got lost in the desert right before a big storm you know there's always these interesting compounding things that happen and uh one of the people leading this experience had a premonition to let the fire burn that night it's like typically i would have you know he would have doused the fire and and they all would have you know so it wasn't alarming that folks were still out because this is what they were doing. And he had a, a, a piece of inspiration to keep that fire burning. And, you know, my friend credits that with saving his life, um, but also being a turning point in his life spiritually, um, realizing a, a connection because of this, um, this inspiration that this individual had that ended up saving his life. And I don't really know much more about the story. He's going to come on and, and share it here. And so we'll learn more about it, but there's these interesting threads, I guess. Yeah. As you say, Sam, um, you will find as you do this podcast and your listeners will come to enjoy this, that these are deeply personal and sacred stories. And as you were telling that story, I recall a few, two, two years ago, about this time of year, maybe a little more into the fall, uh, we got a call um, very near my house where there's some excellent mountain biking trails and about a missing mountain biker who was about my age, an older guy, you know, uh, and he's gone out on a Sunday afternoon and it was now 1030 at night and he had not returned and he's wearing the biking attire and that's it, you know, the, the spandex stuff and he's um, it's going to get down to 37 degrees that night. No snow on the ground, but I was the first on the scene and his wife was just beside herself. And his son's there and they're saying, find my, find our husband, find our dad, find, you know, find him. They were just panicked. And so our team got together, we came in, um, we had dogs, we had uh, side-by-sides, we had single track, um, which are very useful in, in covering going up and down trails. We had a couple of helicopters that came down from the state. And we, we just get it, gave it an all a big push. About two o'clock in the morning, one of the um, 
single track guys who were going up a trail. They'd go 100 yards or 200 yards up a trail, stop, turn off their engines, call out, um, listen, call out, listen. Is a single um, track like a dirt bike or? Yeah, dirt bike, exactly. Okay. Yeah, it's exactly a dirt bike. And, um, and they hear um, so a weak voice saying, I'm here, I'm here. And, and it was choking back the tears. And, uh, and so they, they go down, they pull this guy up. He's, um, this is a pillar of the community. This is someone within a leadership role in a company. This is somebody that a lot of people know, very dignified person. And he's completely crying and um, overwhelmed. And they check him out, make sure he's medically okay. He's fine. They start walking him down. They put a you know, blanket around him. They get him hydrated, but they're walking him down. He doesn't need anything more than that. And uh, he continues to, to cry. And my buddy said, um, finally, I asked him, I said, are you sure you're all right? And, and he said this, he said, you don't understand what it's like to be in the dark, to not know where you are, to not know where to go. And then you hear your name. Somebody calls your name and you see a light. I said, you don't understand what it's like to see that light when you've been in the dark that long. And that was so moving yeah. for us, you know, for me to hear that, to say, that's what this, these lost stories are about, is somebody who survived the darkness, the aloneness, the whatever it is, and then they saw a light. And sometimes that light is psychological. Sometimes it's very material, yeah. but it's that light. And that is always a deeply human and deeply spiritual experience. You know, I'm I'm sure that um, I know there's at least going to be six episodes of this podcast because I've got six people so far who've committed <laughs> to come on. So there's at least going to be. I'm six. listening. I'm going to listen. <laughs> I really am. And so I I'm sure that this story will be shared a few times. But um, you know, for me, I was ten years old or so. So if you're listening, if you're listening to the Lone Podcast, you've heard the story. So I apologize there. But if you're you're going to hear it some more, so I was about ten years old. And um, from one of my friends' birthdays, his dad was going to take us all camping. Um, and we were camping up at Donut Falls in Cottonwood Canyons, right? Yeah. Here, it's a place in Utah, basically. And we were, I think this was a, a late spring, it was a late spring trip. And so there was still some snow on the ground. I mean, you're, you know, you're high lots elevation. Lots of water. Lots of yep, water. Lots of water yeah. and still some snow probably not the the best option for one man to take a herd of you know 10 to 12 year old boys to do and compounding things was just a few weeks before I we had left I I was a weird kid I watched the news a lot so like I knew everything that was going on even at the age of 10 and there was someone who had lost their life at Donut Falls um just a couple weeks prior to me going and I got lost from the group. There was, you know, we basically hit a decision point and half the crew wanted to push on and continue up to Donut Falls and the other half wanted to turn around and go back. And I got caught in indecision and, you know, I wanted to, essentially I wanted to stay and, and go down and then I made the decision, no, I, I want to keep going. So I turned to try and catch up to the group and this was fast. I mean, this was in a, a matter of, you know, 20, yeah. 30 seconds. I mean, it wasn't long. And I turned to, to catch up to the group and they were already out of earsight, out of eyesight. I mean, they were just gone. 
and when I couldn't see them, I was like, all right, well, whatever. I'll go back down with the group I was I'm with and, you know, and just we'll do that another day. And I turned to go down with the group I was with and they were gone. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know if what the combination was, if it was youth, uh, inexperience, probably all of it, probably youth, inexperience, knowing what had happened on the news. I mean, all these things. And I instantly just spiraled. I mean, it was, it was fast. Yeah. I went from fine to not okay really quick. Yeah. And, um, I realized that in, you know, in, in some level of my hurriedness to catch up to somebody, I was off trail and, you know, I, I tried looking for a while and I couldn't find anything. And I spent hours, <laughs> you know, just kind of not, not moving far, but basically gridding a small area to say, I know the trail is here. It's, it's right here somewhere, but I couldn't find the darn thing. And, you know, I eventually had that moment where I did say that, you know, a prayer, uh, mm -hmm. you know, made that, that plea to anything, you know, help me out. And I tell you what, it was like instantly almost, there's just like the trail illuminated, you know, I mean, I'd spent hours looking for this thing, kind of crossing the same little area. I don't know how much ground I covered. It certainly wasn't one of those stories where some kid, you know, covers five miles over the course of three hours lost. I mean, it wasn't something like that. It was a very small area. But a, a light illuminated the trail. And, it, you know, I don't know what the heck it was. I can't say, yeah. you know, anything. But And I was able to hit the trail and make it back. Um, enough time had elapsed. And I was far enough off of something that the whole group was in camp. <laughs> they were oh. all Scott this is probably going to make you scream they were all in camp sitting around the picnic table eating lunch and they knew that oh. I was gone yeah. one 10 year old kid gone in the mountains no one knew where I was but they were hanging out having lunch um, so a light <laughs> you know yeah. it's it, it, that certainly is what I experienced well you you learned in that thing the two, two ideas uh, one that fear itself can kill you Yes. Um, that fear is the most toxic thing you can take into the wilderness. And then when you have it, when you slip into that moment where fear is, is controlling what you're thinking and what you're doing, how you're behaving, it, it can just destroy you. Yeah. And, um, and the other side of that is that hope, when you have that sense of hope, uh, you, it doesn't change your material condition at all, but it changes your capacity to think through and solve problems. I interviewed one kid who um, he, he was coming down um, lost, had lost the trail. He was following the water. You know, it was a Boy Scout. Boy Scouts were looking for him. And uh, it's getting night and there are mo there's a moose around that had chased him and he was scared and he thought, what should I do? And it was going to, again, it's gonna, high mountain, high elevation. No, not the right kind of clothing. What do I do? What do I do? And this kid sat down on a log in, in a meadow and the log had been in the sun all day. And when he sat down, he felt the warmth of that log. He thought, That's, this log's been in the sun all day. And then he felt down on, at his feet and there were all this pile of pine boughs, old dead things, things that you know little boys love to sleep in and, and parents and uh, moms hate. And he just pulled all of that stuff that was warm over him and slept like a baby you know, um, that night and then got up and walked out the next morning. Meanwhile, of course, everybody's looking for him. But he had that clarity, that sense of hope, that sense of possibility, and he wasn't afraid. And that saved his life, I think. 
see, and that's, um, I'm glad we're here because really for me and my experience, you know, when I, on the other podcast and, and when I've shared that story, that's the part of it that I, you know, you can't prepare for. I don't, you can't, you can't, I don't, I don't think so that you can prepare for what can happen to your brain when you're in that moment. And that's kind of the impetus behind this whole thing is, is to just talk about how your brain just can betray you really quickly. Like I said, fear will kill you. And I think for me, that is so important. Now, my experience, it set off, you know, a a decade of um, real mental issues when it came to being in the woods. And, and I mean, that's a, maybe a thing for another day, Um, you know, and to this day, 20 plus years on, I prepare like a crazy person when I'm going out on an adventure, right? Um, And even in my running experience, even if I don't take the things I should have with me, uh, I at least I'm thinking through, right? And, and um, you're anticipating worst case scenario. Yeah. And going through that kind of, you know, I, you say you can't prepare. And I think there's some truth to that because being lost is always about surprise. And so it's a surprise beyond what you can imagine, what you can anticipate. And so you have there that sense that you don't know how to find yourself. It's not that you just don't know where the trail is. You don't know how to find the trail. What's the best way to find it? You could grid, you can do this, but, but what, what, how can I find it? But I do think that there's something about preparation that I've learned with uh, training for search and rescue that's... Um, we train so much. We train over and over on things and always... We, I, I'd say 80% of our training is basic and, and repeating the basic, basic first aid, basic knots, basic raising and lowering systems, basic helicopter landings, all of the basic stuff. And then we do it again and again and again, um, because there are so many activities in search and rescue that you don't do very often in the field. But if you do them, you have to get them absolutely perfectly right. And I found that that training for me, there have been a, I, I just remember, you know, going through all this first aid training and then suddenly I've got a, a guy who's bleeding out on the head right in front of me. And um, what do I do? I've never had, I've never seen that much blood. I've never seen it. You, you practice with no blood, right? You know, you train with no blood and suddenly I have to stop the bleeding and it is there in my brain and it moves right up to the front and I know exactly what to do. And I surprise even myself that, that me and my partner were able to stop this guy's bleeding, get him comfortable, get him sitting down. And then when the paramedics did arrive, they were, they had nothing to do except take over the case, take over the patient, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I do think that there are some things that we can do, you know, to, to prepare for that sense of lostness. And one of them is to know how to generate hope in ourselves, uh, to, to be able to stand aside, to stand up, like Victoria Grover did, you know, looking at herself in the mirror and then seeing herself backwards, to not be afraid to do that kind of different thinking um, to adapt to a situation like that. Let's let's uh, jump into that for a minute because, you know, to your point of of practice and preparation, um, I've asked a, a I have a few different friends and acquaintances and whatnot that are military or law enforcement and. Um, I, I guess I've had this question in my mind a lot longer than I realized. One of the things I talk about a lot is, you know, how do you prepare for those situations that you, know, you, you even in a simulation, you know that it's a simulation, right? Even if it's the yeah. most realistic sim in the world and you're going to get, 
if you do it wrong, you're going to get shot by a very painful thing and you're not <laughs> going to like it. And, you know, you might cry a little bit. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, it's simunition and you know, you know, like, how do you, how do you train to be ready in that moment? And the same thing was, it's just, it's a repetition and you see, it kind of gets to a point. And I, I guess maybe the psychology behind it, you're, uh, you know, a lot smarter than I am. So maybe the psychology is, is even though you can't prepare for what exactly it's going to be like, if you prepare yourself for that situation, you maybe give yourself the ability to overcome that initial reaction or when that training memory kicks in, you're going to over, hopefully overcome the fear response. And so when you think about that, you talk about that preparation and of, of doing that, do you have any advice or thoughts or things that you've learned of how a lay person can prepare uh, for that type of experience? I'm, I'm, for me, I'm thinking mentally and emotionally, spiritually, but maybe it's something different. I don't know. Well, I think it's all of what you said, but I, I tell you what works in search and rescue, because you end up doing things that you never thought you'd have to do in your life. Um, you end up, um, you know, recovering a body um, that I, I wasn't ready to do that. Um, and, um, but now my dog and I in the last few years have found more than one body. And um, you, you just kind of wonder what that's going to be like. And sometimes you have to to help get the body bagged and put in a helicopter and, you know, just things that you never thought you would have to do. And it's so much easier. It's so much better when you're with somebody to do that when you're on a team and the team becomes your family, your brothers and sisters, your, you know, the people that you love and you trust when you train together as a team. And then you have to do these things together as a team. It makes all the difference in the world. And it's an incredibly bonding experience. And so I think, what I would say is that whenever you prepare to do the hard things in life, do them as a team, do them together, do them with the people that you trust and you love, and and it will make it more enjoyable, uh, but it'll also make you better. Because when you know if you're sitting there saying, I'm dependent on being able to give the right kind of first aid at the right time, that's one thing. But if you look at your team and you say, she and he are dependent on me, to give them the right first aid if they need it, then it's a whole different thing. And for me, one of the things that that comes down to is that we train our dogs to do avalanche finds. But the truth is that we never, hardly ever get deployed on an avalanche. And if we ever are, I've never been deployed on one, but if we ever are actually on scene on an avalanche, it's more likely that we will be rescuing another team member and not the person who's missing. Hmm. I do not want my dog to mess up. I do not want the handler. It's more likely that I'll mess up. I do not want to miss that. And that's an important training for me because my team is dependent on that. Sorry, I just, <laughs> while you're talking about your dog, I'm getting mauled by mine. Yours. <laughs> this has never happened before. So for those of you that are listening, uh, Scott's getting to see my dog attacking me. Um, <laughs> so to try and translate that for the uh, i'm thinking of the flip side right of the person who is is in that situation um you know for me i i like to adventure alone <laughs> i for whatever reason i i i like to adventure alone um you know i i shared an experience with you before we started recording i won't go into too many details but you know where i had a a very strong feeling to do a thing one day 
and I had a very strong feeling of, of how to approach that day and what to do on that day. And, you know, I took someone with me and that individual wasn't uh, willing or able to do the day the way that I had wanted to do the day. And I'm not saying, you know, that the end result of, of that experience would have been any different. Um, yeah. I'm, I don't, I'm not saying that at all. Anyways, long story is I like to adventure alone. Um, because I don't know if it's, I like to be alone with my thoughts or I like to be able to, um, be in control of my own destiny and not have to worry about the, the whims or the needs of others. But that kind of doesn't go well, <laughs> right? No. Well, and it, it actually, um, I would say this, I mean, I ride, uh, I mountain bike alone, but I mountain bike on trails that, um, have, uh, people quite regularly on them and that are within self other than self-service. Um, I hike sometimes on those same trails alone and with my dog. Um, but I do not do wilderness, deep wilderness stuff alone. And um, I, I just don't anymore. I've just seen that most of the situations, you, you know, the data is kind of damning. Um, if you are uh, by yourself in the wilderness, and you get into trouble, you've got about a two to three day window for survival. If there are two of you, that window extends to five days. And if there are three of you, it extends to 10 days. So when you have other people there, it just makes things better hmm. and safer. And so, you know, I, I've, I've limited quite a bit the alone things that I do. Um, because I think you just have to be very, very careful. The other thing is if you are going to go alone, um, bring along a personal device. I, I have a, uh, GPS system, uh, that's made by Garmin. It allows me to send text messages and it also has an emergency operator that you can text to. Plus one and, for inReach here. Yeah. You have inReach? <laughs> yep. Yeah. And, um, and there are other ones and sat phones and things like that that you can take with you. And that makes a great deal of difference. The reason these days that, um, you know, it used to be that search and rescue was about 50% search and about 50% rescue. Now it's about 90% rescue and about 10% search. People aren't searched for very much anymore because they're carrying a cell phone and we can ping them and we know exactly where they are. And so that 10% that we do end up looking for are usually people that don't want to be found. Um, they're either too young to have a cell phone or too old to have a cell phone or they left their cell phone in the car and they really don't want you to find it. And so, you know, uh, it's just carry that cell phone with you. By the way, the cell phone, um, if it doesn't have any bars, if you have no service, you can sometimes still get a 911 call out. And people need to understand that you can get a 911 call out sometimes, even if you have no bars. Uh, the other thing is that um, if you leave your cell phone on, then they can usually track that cell phone with a helicopter signal um, sometimes. And so, you know, they're, leave it on. Uh, the light on your cell phone is really important too, because if they're looking for you with flare, with uh, uh, light detection at night, uh, they need a light source like that. And, and a cell phone shows up uh, even through the trees. So those are, you know, things to know if you're out there by yourself, but I would recommend that at least on the deep wilderness things where people are not on the trails or where you're bushwhacking, don't go it alone. 
did your behaviors, uh, I guess, how how significantly have your behaviors changed um, in the last, what, seven, eight years since you've been a member of Search and Rescue and been heavily involved in that? Um, that's a good question. All of your questions have been good questions. I think for me, um, I'm more... Uh, I'm more careful, you know, I, I am more careful. I'm very safety conscious. Um, I, you know, whenever we go down a rope uh, or a rope system, we have double or triple redundancy. We're very careful. We have extra thick ropes. We use extra heavy rescue uh, quality things. So they're just um, having the right equipment has changed me a lot. Um, but more than anything, it's changed me internally. I've just seen the best in human behavior when you're out there, I've seen the best, the most unselfish acts I can imagine. I've seen, um, I'll just tell you one experience. Um, we, uh, this is hard for me to even just communicate, um, but we had a young man um, from Salt Lake City, Utah, who was of uh, Polynesian descent, uh, who had um, been a service missionary for two years for the LDS church. And uh, he had come home and his family had welcomed him home. And after a few weeks, he went out with his friends and they went diving uh, off of a bridge uh, over a river. And there's signs everywhere that say, don't dive here. And he dove in. Big kid, really big kid. He was wearing all cotton and he went right to the bottom and, and he drowned. And... Um, we had to spend some time looking for him. And by the time we found him, his uh, family was there. His whole community was there in one form or another. The parents of these young boys that had gone diving with him, everybody was there. And uh, as we carried his body off of the, out of the water and onto the shore, they began to sing. Um, they sang this song and, um, it was a hymn, but it was the most beautiful song I'd ever heard. And I was just overwhelmed. I, everybody was there, was overwhelmed. And I later talked to the brother of this young man and I said, what, what, what were the words of that song? What did it mean? And he said, that's a hymn of gratitude. And, it was, and I said, for, for your brother? And he said, yes, for my brother, but also for you for being in that cold water for hours and looking for this kid, looking for his body. And that's what's changed me, Sam, is that's the kindest, those are the kindest words that I have ever experienced in my life. And I wasn't even really very close, very, very there for that incident, but he was so grateful to me for the nothing that I had done. And, uh, and so, yeah, like I said, I see the best in human behavior. And actually the best in dog behavior too, because uh, dogs is another show, but to talk about what dogs can do in the wilderness that humans can't is, is just amazing. Where, <laughs> where to go? Um, you know, one of the hardest things about that I've, I've found of having these conversations, um, obviously this is the first one for this podcast, but you know, when things get really personal, it's hard to, to, to do justice to a story and it's hard for me to do justice that I, I hope that everyone um, can feel the justice that, that story deserved. Um, I wasn't expecting to cry tonight, 
<laughs> but you got me, Scott. So thank you. Well, um, uh, it's hard to tell a story. If being lost is always personal, and that's why this podcast is going to be so good because everyone's going to tell yeah. a personal story. Yeah. Um, I want to. I. <laughs> it's hard to switch gears. There's something big in my mind. I want to talk about something that you you've mentioned it. I think twice now. It's come up in in our conversation today, and it's the concept of of the lost who are not wanting to be found um obviously i mean not obviously but to me obviously that brings me to um a story from your book again lessons of the lost um that that you shared a, a very personal story from your book that you shared but i'm curious about that and you know you've talked about recoveries or not recoveries you've talked about rescues versus searches and i think for everyone that's probably pretty obvious um, a rescue. I'm I'm going to go on a limb and and correct me where, where I'm wrong. But a rescue. I'm I'm assuming that this is something of known location, uh, unable to self rescue. Yeah. Versus a search, which is unknown location, unknown status. Um, we don't know exactly. if, if this is a recovery or if this is an individual who is, you know, like super running themselves somewhere. You know, you just don't know. Yeah. But then there's this subset of the lost who are not wanting to be found um, because it's something I've been curious about. And again, I can already tell that, that we've probably got two or three of these conversations to have in the future um, because it is interesting to me with you know today's day and age. I'm sure a lot of people think the same thing of, look, we've got FLIR on helicopters. We have helicopters. We have drones. We have the ability to... to ping phones and you know even if someone has a device there's stories you know you'll you probably saw this here locally a couple years ago of an individual who was lost and had a phone had like everything there was they could see folks you know but they didn't know how to use their phone in a manner to to help them um but then like how is it possible to not be found i guess and so can you talk yeah. a little bit about this concept of the lost not wanting to be found and, and those decisions, obviously that's a very personal thing for people. And, um, uh, you know, but is there anything that you can, it's actually, share? you know, in search and rescue, it's certainly the hardest thing we do because we sometimes have to go out and, you know, that you, you don't always know. Um, they don't, you can't always figure it out, but sometimes you can look at the psychological profile of somebody and, tell pretty quickly that they are leaving their cell phone in the car and their backpack and their supplies and all these things in the car for a reason, that they are going to go into the woods and either harm themselves or in, um, or in some cases just neglect themselves until, until things end. Um, but you, you mentioned that and it's, it's a hard thing to figure out. Um, it's a hard thing for dogs. Um, that's when we use dogs a lot because we have to uh, if they, there's no cell phone to ping them with, we can uh, get a scent on the car or the PLS, we call it the point last scene, and we can pick up a track and sometimes find them that way. Um, and, and we've done that a few times and it's been really hard, you know, if it's a bad ending. Uh, a few weeks ago, I, I can't give all the details about this, but a few weeks ago, we had a situation like that. And um, the... Uh, uh, we, we just didn't know, but it just seemed like this was somebody who was, uh, was going through a very difficult time in their life. There were psychological triggers. There were things left in the car, all of these different things that were in place. And 
And our assumption was that we were looking for a body on day three. They'd looked a little bit on day one, a lot on day two. Now we're into day three and things are getting uh, really intense. And about the time we were about ready to step into the woods and find him, he walked into camp. He walked into the, somebody had picked him up on the highway and drove him actually over to the search headquarters. Later, we learned that he had had in fact gone out uh, for that reason. Uh, to harm himself and that while he was sitting there contemplating it this was on day one he heard two of our searchers walking near him and calling out his name and that's what kept him from got got him through the night and then the next day he saw the planes and the helicopters and others and he said if people care that much about me maybe I ought to think about this again and on day three he had enough courage to come home I that hasn't only happened to me once, but I just felt a great deal of gratitude for the fact that that man has courage to stay with us. And I've been on so many situations myself personally where we had go back into the parking lot and there's really bad news and the family's right there. And, um, and it's the worst day of their lives. And sometimes they react uh, with adversity, they're angry at us, I don't care you know, in the sense that they can be angry at me, that's fine. Um, it was hard for me too, but they can be angry at anyone they want to at that moment. Um, but it's very hard, it's very hard. And there's just too, too much of that these days where people are lost first socially and emotionally, and then they get lost in the wilderness deliberately. Um, yeah, that's, a, a I think, a big, topic in your book um and we you know we had not necessarily close again i won't divulge details either right the this is an interesting space to have these conversations because (laughs) unless that person is uh, either given explicit permission or unless they're here uh as a guest you know plus it's very personal but we we had a, a a friend of my wife's um who someone very close to her did the same thing they got lost and then uh they went and got lost and uh you know that was a a northern utah case from about two weeks ago so that'll ring your bell there scott but um i I guess i'll just quickly throw this out here you know (laughs) you've talked about you're never lost alone um, and that's true in that very real physical sense, right? You are never lost alone because at some point someone's going to recognize and, and at some point there will be people coming. Um, but if you're out there and you feel, if you're able to listen to this podcast and you, and you feel lost, um, there are people there. There are professional resources. There are, are people everywhere uh, who are willing to sit there and call your name. There's people who are willing to be the first people in your life to cheer your name. Um, those folks are out there. And I'm going to go ahead and obviously we'll, we'll link, I'll link resources to helplines and whatever else in the show notes. And so if you're, you know, listening to this and you feel like you're in that place or, you know, someone, um, that information will be there, but yeah, never lost alone. Yeah, let me say one more thing about that. Um, and I've, I've told youth groups this as they've asked me to speak and talk. Um, if you ever see the aftermath of a suicide, 
you you would never consider that as an option. I, you know, like I said, I've come into a dark parking lot at three in the morning, exhausted, trailing a, a dog, and the, the bad news has already been delivered. And if you you cannot understand this depth of sorrow these people are going through when they've lost a son or a daughter that way. You just cannot understand that until you've seen it. And if you could see it, you would never consider that as an option. Yeah, it um, it it leaves a wake. And, uh, you know, if it's impacted our family very closely. Um, and it, it definitely it leaves awake and and yeah so if you're if you're there please you know look look for the resources in the show notes and just like scott said you're never lost alone and you know you might have never had someone cheer your name or you might never have heard someone call your name out yet um looking for you but those folks are there they just need some time um Scott, I, you know, this again, I, <laughs> this has taken a, a, a wonderful turn um, in a direction that I didn't necessarily foresee it going, you know, an hour ago. Um, I, I want to give a minute to, to let you, if there's anything you learned or any advice that you would give to people based on what you've learned um, that you would share with folks as we start to maybe wind this down here tonight. Well, um, I, I, I guess for me, I have to say that um, being involved in search and rescue, if you haven't figured this one out yet, is, is just one of the deepest privileges of my life. And very often as we're pumping our way up a trail, people tell us to say, thanks for your service. Thanks for your service. Well, that means a lot. It's, for me, it's never felt like service. It's felt like it's given back to me more than I've ever given to it. And, uh, and so for that, I'm really appreciative. And I'm really appreciative of the people who've been willing to say thanks, but it still feels really nice when somebody gives you a high five and says, thanks. Um, thank you for that. And is there anything that we, that we haven't touched on time? I mean, I've got tons of things I want to touch on. I, I think, <laughs> You know, maybe we've got well, six. Well, let's do a show up. sometime on uh, dogs. I'd love to talk. Yeah, about I mean, dogs. we haven't even. You're a you're a canine handler, a canine expert. We have, and you've. It sounds like you've trained. You trained your own dogs, which is yeah, uh, very incredible. And, and then I've watched them do things beyond training, and you realize that these dogs can ha- have anticipatory skills too, that they can say, "No, you're telling me to do this, but I need to do that to solve the problem." Oh man, and that's. Yeah. Don't you know, it's not me. like programming a computer, but it's amazing. <laughs> I, I got stories to tell on that. So Let's do a show on that. We've sometime. got canines need to talk about. Um, I'm I'm intensely curious because I I can feel that the um, and I I apologize. I'm going to say this, but I can feel that the PhD side of you ha- and all the things that entails has greatly impacted and colored the way that you've approached um, your time with search and rescue it, it feels very strongly that those two things have have had a very great relationship um, intensely well there's another that. thing that's interesting that you might want to do a show on and that's on lost person behavior yes. on how you use behavioral algorithms to figure out where somebody might be 
Well, we, oh, <laughs> we let's we, build the list. <laughs> we've got six episodes lined up, and we've got you coming back for three more. Um, <laughs> but I, I really can you. Is there any anecdote that you can share? A story you can share? And then I, I do want to spend some time in the future talking about the dogs very specifically. But you talk about a dog anticipating something, and can you share? Is there a story you can share that kind of highlights that that we can? Well, kind I'll of tell you. You know, cliffhanger for my, the future. Yeah, Boo is my second dog. Um, First dog was uh, Dusty, and um, uh, Boo, um, when he was just six months old, I took him to a junior high school to an assembly, and there were 600 kids in the room, and I did a little thing about lost person behavior and a little thing about the 10 essentials you bring into the wilderness, and then I, my wife was sitting in the back, and she had Boo on a leash, and I said, go and bring the dog up, and all the kids go, yay, yeah. And then and I called Boo and he comes running up and jumps on the stage. And, you know, he's like a show dog. He's he's just thriving on the crowd. And and then uh, I, I have a command I give him that uh, is just essentially go find somebody. Go sit next to somebody. I say, he's going to come sit next to somebody and, uh, and you're going to be my volunteer, my helper on stage, if you wouldn't mind. So um, he goes and sits down next to this kid out in the middle of the audience. And, uh, the, and the kid comes up and helps me with a few things. And that's a good experience for the kid. At the end of the assembly, this teacher comes up to me and she's just in tears. And she said, how did your dog know? I said, what do you mean? He goes, how did your dog know? I said, know what? She said, this was my autistic student. He hasn't said a thing the whole year. And now he can't stop talking about how wonderful your dog is. Dogs know things that we do not know. They feel things that we cannot feel. And so that's the, that, that's the uh, teaser I'm going to give you if we do a dog show. Yes, so. we're, well, we're going to have to. Um, Scott, this has been absolutely incredible. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and, and share and open up. Um, you know, it's funny. Again, I've, I've done, I've had lots of very personal conversations, but for some reason, I'm never expecting the the level of um, depth of, of conversations, and I appreciate you being willing to share that depth. Well, um, Sam, you're a great interviewer, so thank you so much. I appreciate that. And as we wrap up, is there? I, I've got like a, it's kind of a kitschy question. I'm kind of embarrassed to ask it, but I'm going to ask it because I feel like your answer is going to be unexpected. Um, if there was one piece of advice that you would give to folks that adventure, recreate, explore in the wilderness? Uh, if there was one piece of advice you would give them in the vein of preparedness, survival, things go sideways, what would that be? And again, it's it's a kitschy question. I would normally avoid yeah. something so obvious, but I feel like the answer is not going to be obvious, I hope. <laughs> I think there's a real um, important one that is something that... Um, that doesn't just apply to the wilderness, but it's a term that we use in the wilderness. Um, situational awareness, learn situational awareness. Learn to take your head off of the screen and look up at the real world. Out of the book and look up at the real world. Off of your feet going down the trail and look up and see what's going on around you. See the storm coming in. See the um, whatever's changing see the animal in front of you that may be uh, threatening. All of these different things that, that put people in trouble, I would say you could eliminate 30, 40, 50% of all 
um, search and rescue incidents if the persons, if the people involved were more situationally aware. Um, you know, they were not trying to cross a river with whitewater. They were not trying to, to go up a cliff with no ropes. Um, if they just understood the situation they were in and why they should be careful. Yeah, it's perfect. Um, it's funny trying to, to wrap up for you here, but it just, it, I think that's perfect answer. I was always raised with keep your head on a swivel. Yeah. Everything I did, it was keep your head on a swivel. Right. And there's been multiple times where that has, has been very useful to me. There was a, I'll share one quick story. I was in the, the, the backside of a mountain range called the Stansbury mountains. So for Scott, he knows those, um, for those that are out there, it's a, a desert mountain range in Utah, I guess. I mean, pretty much all of these are desert ranges, but it's a desert range in Utah. It's a real desert range. And I was in a particular place that was, um, pretty darn remote. It was hard to get to. If you didn't know that there was an access road there, you wouldn't know it was there just based. I mean, it was, very, very cool spot. And we were, a friend and I were off trail hiking up there, off trail, mind you. And we were walking along and all of a sudden I just stopped. And my friend was like, we got to stop, man. There's, there's something that's not right. We need to stop. And, you know, we stopped and it wasn't immediately obvious to me why I had stopped. I knew that I knew that I had seen or something. I knew that something had triggered me to say, no, 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 Like you need to pay attention. And after probably a minute of standing there, my buddy's thinking, man, what the heck has gotten into you? You know, we're just out on a hike. There's nothing going on middle of nowhere. Um, after about a minute of me just standing there scanning, like saying there's something, my brain picked up on something. I need to figure out what it was. And sure enough, about, I don't know, 50, 75 feet in front of us there, all it was, was a tree that was, cut flat like cut off but it was cut off about four feet off the ground and that was the thing that my brain had subconsciously picked up because i wasn't just out traipsing through the woods i was paying attention to what i was doing and my brain picked up that's not right but it didn't know it it just saw it and then i had to figure it out well it turns out that there was some sort of a shelter that had been built there and so we, I looked, noticed the tree and then I still sat there for a minute and then I could barely start to, you know, make out an A-frame kind of through the woods. And, you know, we were already <laughs> too close for comfort. We were in a place where, you know, uh, the only reason someone would have a, a robust shelter built like that there was probably because they didn't want to be found. I mean, it was just in a really weird spot. And we were already too close, right? (laughs) I was too Mm -hmm. close to just turn around and walk out. And so, you know, we had, it was this whole big mess, but yeah, keep your head on a swivel. Um, Nothing bad came of that situation. And I don't, I don't know. I don't think anyone had been in the shelter when we walked up, but there was certainly um, extremely recent signs of habitation in the little shelter we found. And, um, signs of weapons and you know just things that weren't weren't nice to traipse into so yeah keep your head on a swivel folks um be situationally aware i you know i run into people i used to run into people all the time hiking that had you know we're on a, a long arduous steep hike 
and we're, you know, we're fully kitted out and we're cruising the trail and people are on sandals and, and carrying yeah. purses and stuff. And I used to carry extra water. Like I'd go on hard hikes and I'd carry like four or five extra water bottles with me because I knew, I know I'm going to run into someone who wasn't paying attention to what they were doing when they got there. And so, yeah, I would agree with that. Be situationally aware. Uh, anything else before we wrap up oh I'm good Sam thank you so much thanks for having me on your show and good luck I'm going to be listening